Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Episode 153 of the Bowery Boys. New York and the birth of television. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo's editors inspect and recommend the best budget hotels in Europe. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. We have another one of our industry shows for you this month. But instead of taking something like radio or the movies and confining it into one show, we are doing our summer TV miniseries, 100 Years of the History of Television in New York City. It seems like a fun and breezy summertime topic, doesn't it? It does. We're actually going to start at the most technical part of the three parts. We're going to dwell a bit on the beginnings of television, the birth of the television industry in New York. In the period that we're going to cover, which is the beginning of the century up to the end of World War II, most people who had TVs were actually in New York City. This show has a lot of parallels with the other media shows that we've done. So if you haven't already listened to the New York and the Birth of Radio and the New York and the Birth of Film podcast, those would be great starter shows as well. What I think is so interesting about this topic is that TV and radio really developed very, very closely together. In my mind, I had TV happening much later than radio, when in fact, so much of the TV development, as we'll get into in a minute here, happened in the 1920s. Yeah, I mean, it happened almost at the same time as radio. And the other amazing thing is many of the locations here in New York City, which are instrumental to the history of television, are some of New York's greatest landmarks. So get ready to see the Empire State Building and Grand Central Terminal in an entirely different way. So don't touch that dial. Join us as we examine New York and the birth of television. After 10 years of experiment, television, first shown to the public at the World's Fair, now takes its place as a new American art and industry. With the inauguration of regular television broadcast from NBC, one of the RCA services, set owners in metropolitan New York enjoy the novel experience of receiving pictures through the air. But an examination of the set contributes little to an understanding of the subject. Except for the screen and slanted mirror that reflects the image to the audience, it is much like a radio in appearance. But in the RCA Victor Laboratories, where television equipment has been developed, we get a better view of the tubes that have added two new words to our vocabulary. The iconoscope for the camera and the kinescope for the receiver. The iconoscope is mounted behind the lens in this crude laboratory camera. The lens focuses the image of the experimental chart upon a metal plate in the tube, and the iconoscope turns the image into electricity. So before we start rummaging through the channels here of New York's television heritage, set us up a little bit, I guess, recap a little bit of the radio show, because some of those personalities are going to pop into this and some of those corporations as well. Well, in fact, I think all of them. All of them. All yeah. of them will. 
Um, so as we covered in the radio podcast, radio started out the stuff of amateurs and became a big business in the 1920s because of visionaries like David Sarnoff and William Paley. The whole industry transitioned from being about telegraphs, actually, and sending wireless messages to being about broadcast, which was a huge change, a, a big distinction to make here. It wasn't one-to-one communication, it was one-to-many. And Sarnoff went from being a lowly telegraph operator who may or may not have worked the night that the Titanic sank oh, right. uh-huh. in 1912 to leading the Marconi Wireless Telegraph Company of America, which was a British company. Now, after World War One, the U.S. determined that the, the largest communications company in the U.S., this Marconi company, which was English-owned, should not be English-owned. We, we needed right. to have our own... An American company, yeah. And so they worked and conspired, if you will, with General Electric, AT&T, Westinghouse, and the United Fruit Company to buy Marconi and then rename it the Radio Corporation of America in 1919. RCA. Exactly. They produced radios, but they also opened up their own radio stations. Now, in the early 1920s, they went on a buying spree and snatched up enough stations across the country to form a network of stations so that they could invest in, you know, booking better stars. They could put on bigger shows because they had more outlets and they could sell better advertising. So this network of radio stations throughout the country, right, right by the by the late 1920s. 1926, okay. this network that RCA owned was called the National Broadcasting Company. Otherwise known as NBC. They had so many stations, in fact, that they formed two networks. There was NBC Red and NBC Blue. The Red Network was mostly sponsored content, and the Blue Network was more cultural content. And it was like a more independent station, so, so to speak. Right. The FCC would step in and say, hold on a second, RCA, mm-hmm. you own NBC, plus you're selling all of these radios, plus you own all these stations, and you basically have a monopoly on selling advertising over the airwaves. This isn't quite right, so they, the FCC forced NBC to sell off one of its two networks. So this okay. went all the way to the Supreme Court, and NBC would lose. Okay, and then I believe what they sold off was the Blue Network, correct? That is correct. They sold it off to Edward J. Noble, who owned Lifesavers. For <laughs> I didn't eight, know that. And for $8 million, and he didn't like the name the Blue Network Company. So, Greg, what did he rename it? The American Broadcasting Company, or ABC. So there you have ABC and NBC, and meanwhile, CBS, briefly, the Columbia Broadcasting System was founded in 1928 by William S. Paley when he bought 16 radio stations and formed his own network. A distinction between Paley and Sarnoff, who was the head of RCA and NBC, Paley wasn't selling radios. He was just selling airtime. He was, he was creating the programming that would be on the air. Meanwhile, Sarnoff over at RCA and NBC, he was selling the radios and the airtime. So Paley was into it for the benefit of the programming, whereas Sarnoff and RCA was in it for the benefit of the equipment being sold to carry the broadcasting, at least initially. Well, yes, but Sarnoff was also making a lot of money off of the sponsored radio hours, mm-hmm. off of all the big sponsorships. So Sarnoff was making it two different ways. Oh, sure, Paley okay. only had, had one. one. Okay, gotcha. Now, what's funny about today's podcast is that we're going to be talking about these experimental stations at the same time that radio was really king, right? Throughout the 1920s mm-hmm. and throughout the 1930s and even the 1940s, it was all about radio. And it seemed only really to a few innovators mm-hmm. that television would be the, the way forward. So yeah, it, it seemed like a novelty. 
or that it was not necessarily for watching the programming, but it would be used for some other purpose. Like AT&T was thinking that it would be used for sight telephones, you know, so that you could look at the person you were talking to. The radio business wasn't necessarily excited about TV encroaching upon its business because it was just getting really rolling by the end of the 1920s. And tons of people had stake in radio's future and were perhaps not very enthusiastic about how television could take away money and talent from them. And finally, I just add that by the end of the 1920s, it wasn't just radio we were talking about here, but also movie theaters had just introduced sound. Think about the big motion picture chains, many of which were owned by studios themselves. They had just invested an enormous amount of money in wiring themselves for sound. And then along comes this thing called television. People didn't know if televisions would be actually in people's homes or in theaters. Right. Was this a threat to the theaters? Where would they have to somehow equip themselves with a television? They weren't really thrilled with this new development anyway. So all of this is important to keep in mind as we dive in here to the early days of TV that all of this was going on, but it didn't flourish until I would say almost to the end of our show for this period of time. So I'm already talking about the end of the 1920s. I guess we've gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves. Maybe we can pull back. Sure, because the modern television actually traces itself to a lot of European inventions from the late 19th century. Like the the root of the modern TV starts Mm -hmm. there. But here in America, it shouldn't be surprising to know that in terms of innovation and, and ideas, that the birth of the TV, if you will, actually sprang from the mind of someone better known for science fiction. Oh. I'm about to tell you a short story, but a man named Hugo Gernsback, um, a Luxembourgian who immigrated uh, when he was a teenager to the United States, he happened to have a fascination in telegraph and radio transmission and all the technology therein and decided to come to New York and he wanted to start a place that sold kind of these exotic items that they were making in Europe for budding telegraph operators, you know, for teenagers who found this a fascinating world. So, and, and they could build their own equipment. They could buy these kits. Yeah. So in 1905, he opened a store, the Electro Importing Company, um, which was at 223 Fulton Street, mm-hmm. um, which is where the Freedom Tower is today, that area. It was a mail-order company where you could order parts to essentially make your own telegraphs, to make your own radios, and to make all sorts of little doodads and gadgets, and eventually to make your own television receivers. This was an early implant of an area that would be called Radio Row, which would be all around in these few blocks. And during the 20s and 30s would be an area that specialized in electronics. This was one of the early shops of Radio Row. He marketed all of this to teenagers, but of course it was for children of all ages. And alongside that, he began producing journals for the electrical inventor, uh, of course, that would be sold alongside these parts. And eventually created another magazine that was devoted just to science fiction called Amazing Stories. He, Because of this magazine, it's ex- hugely influential in science fiction. The Hugo Award that is given to the best science fiction novel of the year, it's like the Oscar for sci-fi novels, is named after Hugo Gernsback. Very cool. So in 1909, in one of these magazines, he himself wrote an article about something called the telephote 
I'm sorry? The telephote. The T-E-L-E-P-H-O-T. Maybe the telephot, perhaps. But it was a dream of his to create a television phone. So right, it would, okay, so back to this AT&T telephone. Yeah, I mean, even, so this was like 1909, over 100 years ago. Someone's already coming up with ways in which to transmit a television image. So flash forward to June 12th, 1925, after a decade of experimenting with early television technologies, he decided to create his own little television studio and to broadcast things specifically for those who had bought his products and created the television receivers that he had designed in his own magazines. Oh, my word. So do we know how many people had these receivers? It, he estimates, I think this is a large estimate, he <laughs> estimates that in the New York area, it was about 2,000 people were picking wow. up these very first broadcasts that would originate at the Roosevelt Hotel um, on the 18th floor on 45th and Lexington Avenue. The call letters were WRNY. It was originally a radio station from here in 1925, but three years later, he began using these experimental technologies of mechanical television, which he'll talk about in a second, and started broadcasting crude video imagery for people to pick up at home on their homemade TV receivers. And it seems like several of these early stations, they had not yet figured out how to sync the visual with the audio. Right. So this would have just been the picture. In fact, what he would do, which is kind of curious, is his radio station would broadcast, say, an opera singer, and then she would then come onto the screen and And so you could see the woman who just sang for you on the radio. The very first human image to be transmitted was the chief engineer's wife. You would see her every seven or eight seconds just sort of sitting there and would (laughs) flicker in and out. Very creepy image, if you ask me. And this went on the air in 1925? Uh, This was 1928. The radio station started in 1925, but 1928 were the first TV images. To get the word out for this new invention, in August of 1928... Gernsback had a little demonstration up at Philosophy Hall at New York University. Because remember, they had a Bronx Ah. campus. Do you know what Philosophy Hall is? It's actually where the Hall of Fame of Great Americans is at, that very building. So in that, he invited all of these journalists and businessmen to marvel at this amazing broadcast of this flickering face upon the TV. The type of television that he was using, the technology he was using, was called a mechanical TV. Right, and mechanical TV, now without getting too technical, because I don't think <laughs> that, too that mechanical. is... Or too mechanical. Or too mechanical. It is neither of our fortes. Let me know if, you, if we figure out what our fortes are. But, but mecha- explaining mechanical television is certainly it's, not it's one not of them. It's not one. It's no. not on the list. But... In mechanical TV, both the transmitter, say the camera, and the receiver, the set, had spinning discs inside them through which beams of light would pass and be conducted through wires or through the air and then be reproduced. So so you had, say, this lovely commissioner's wife. Yeah, it, uh, the, sitting, chief, the chief engineer's wife. The yes. chief engineer's wife sitting in front of this camera. And then inside the camera, you've got this this metal disc that's spinning at a certain (laughs) rotation with little slots in it, and her image is passing in and then being transmitted out. 
passing through wires into the transmitter, which is then being broadcast, and off up, up at Philosophy Hall or in these 2,000, 2000 homes, homes yeah. of people who had built their own sets, they were picking up the, that signal. It was going into the TV and then being reproduced using another spinning <laughs> wheel inside and flickering onto the screen. I mean, there's something very modern art about this, almost a medieval <laughs> machine, just like with a... T- Spinning wheel, almost dangerous. Well, actually, not to jump ahead of our story, but later when the FCC was trying to decide which technology to go with, they had to move the box. Uh, one of the receivers had to move a television, and they somehow dislodged or knocked it out of place. And one of the spinning plates inside the television got l- loose and shot up <laughs> through the top of it and flew on it and stuck into the, r- the ceiling of the room. So like a buzzsaw, it just kind of like cut straight through. So... These things were were potentially very dangerous. Okay, both of us, I'm sure, would have hurt ourselves um, <laughs> had we grown up with mechanical TVs. I mean, I hurt I hurt myself on my HD TV. I can't imagine I cut off my hand on the mechanical TV just trying to change the channel. But the main inventors of mechanical TV were John Baird in the UK mm-hmm. and Charles Francis Jenkins in the US. Now. Baird very quickly in the 1920s, in 1925, demonstrated for the first time what we would consider a real televised image in motion at Selfridge's department store in London. Mm -hmm. That same year, in fact, a month later, June 13th, 1925, Charles Francis Jenkins would broadcast a silhouetted image of a toy windmill within a five-mile radius from Maryland to Washington, D.C., and he synchronized that with sound broadcast over a radio wave at the same time. And he was given a patent for that, for transmitting pictures over wireless in 1925. And this is around the time that Hugo was setting up his little radio station up at the Roosevelt. Yeah, Right, and and at the same time, in in 27, so while Hugo's broadcasting, AT&T's Bell Laboratories were working on that picture phone. And those laboratories were in the West Village, on West Street, near uh, near the water's edge. And what they set up was a one-way picture phone from Washington, D.C. to New York, where the the picture would be shown on a two-by-three-foot screen. That's what they were banking on television becoming. And you said a two-by-three-inch screen. Well, they actually had two. One was small, and Uh then one was a large screen that was two-by-three-feet Oh, okay. Well, that is I'm pretty big for this for this era. But it didn't mean that the resolution was any good. No, right. You know, these still we should have mentioned that too with mechanical TV. A huge drawback was because television shows an image in lines. So it's all about how many lines can you get on the screen, and then how often does that screen refresh? And with mechanical TV, I believe it was something like 30 lines at this point. Mm-hmm. Later, it would become more like 50, and then, of course, that number would become much, much higher. I mean, to, in comparison, a, a nice HD TV today is 1,080 lines. So think about 30 lines, and, and <laughs> think about stretching those 30 lines into a 2 by 3 foot screen, <laughs> and you can see that you probably weren't seen very much. You could squint your eyes and, and see that first demonstration, which was an incredibly exciting mm-hmm. broadcast of the Secretary of Commerce, who was uh, on the line from D.C. It was Herbert Hoover, oh. future president, making him the first president to ever be broadcast on television. Although, although not president at the he time. He wasn't president at the time. Happily, television broadcasting had nowhere to go but up from that point. <laughs> okay, that's good. 
and the public could see these television sets, not necessarily buy them easily, but they could go to radio shows, you know, big radio expos. In the 1928 Madison Square Garden radio show, about 40,000 visitors uh, packed in to see these tiny displays. They were only about an inch tall, the displays. <laughs> and this- Can you imagine? 40,000, not at the same time, but I mean, waiting in line... <laughs> Now, I waited at the MoMA for the rain room the right, other day, right, but right. it's kind of the same experience. <laughs> but, well, three years later at the same show at Madison Square Garden in 1931, the same show would have screens that were 10 feet tall. Now, the guy with this 10-foot screen is a guy named Ulysses Sinabria. He would take that 10-foot screen and install it at the Broadway theater and call it theater television. This sounds kind of fascinating. Mm-hmm. It sounds vaguely David Copperfield. <laughs> but he would hang it up on stage, mm-hmm. right, above the stage. And there was a booth underneath it, directly under the screen, mm-hmm. into which a performer would step and be transmitted. So somebody would step in, and there would be a camera right there on them. The lights would go on inside the booth. And that image would be then broadcast onto the screen above them. And then the audience would see it live and and just marvel at how were they able to watch this image on this giant screen of this man who's in a booth who they can't see. So the entertainment here is the actual process of making a television image, not the television image itself. Right. According to Variety um, that came out at the time, a John Teo offered his talking parrot in a very short and undistinguished bit. <laughs> This wasn't just for accomplished performers like John Teo, but audience members, too, were invited up on stage where they could get inside the booth and then wave to their friends in the audience. And people went wild for this kind of thing. It was such a novelty. Kind of like what happens in Times Square today, actually. Right, or what happens over the Today Show. There's Mm -hmm. still something that people can't believe about seeing a camera pointed at them and seeing (laughs) themselves on on a screen. And start waving their hands wildly in the air. Right. So that same year, 1931, CBS experimental station W2XAB opened with a program that included Mayor Jimmy Walker, the Columbia television girl Natalie Towers, and George Gershwin playing the piano. Wow. That's a nice lineup. And this was a mechanical TV station. Which these didn't last very much longer because they would re- be replaced with the electronic television, which I'll talk about. So, right. Wh- these, what is- uh, the, the mechanical TVs, obviously, with all these spinning parts and everything, they were n- not just dangerous, but they were also. The images just weren't really satisfactory when compared to the electronic televisions. And by 1932, everybody else had switched over to electronic TV except for Charles Francis Jenkins, who owned a a station of his own. He sold all of his mechanical TV assets to Lee DeForest, the great inventor, and who was so important in the development of radio and Uh the audio tube and Mm -hmm. going to him. He would then go bankrupt himself. Lee DeForest sold his assets to RCA, who was very eager to do away with mechanical (laughs) television forever, and they did. They basically buried the whole lot. And thus the end of the mechanical television. However, I would like to insert a plug here for the Museum of the Moving Image out in Astoria, Queens, a great museum that focuses on film and television history. They have 
a lot of samples of these mechanical TV devices, and they're really hilarious. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> they're just you can't you just can't really wrap your head around the idea of like curling up on the couch with this mechanical TV re- operating. You know, they're very right. unusual devices, and they have some great examples there. On April nineteenth, nineteen ninety five, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham... Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So if mechanical television is dead, Greg, what, what took its place? Electrical television became the standard. This is, a, this is a device where this pivotal piece of equipment inside of it is called a cathode ray tube. So, I mean, again, not a technician, right. but I'm going to do just give a quick little 30 seconds so that we can explain it in comparison to this like spinning wheel. spinning wheel thing. So electromagnetic waves, similar to radio, you know, with the length and breadth of these electromagnetic waves sent through the air, picked up via an antenna on top of the console here. It would enter this cathode tube inside of the machine. So it would enter from one end of the tube and then project out of the other end onto the back of your TV screen. This, of course, didn't require any kind of crazy moving parts that were potentially dangerous to animals and children. It was also, it was a much faster device and much, much easier to operate, just the the standard receiver box. 
The cathode ray was invented much earlier, but it was perfected. It was named and then patented in the United States by this Russian inventor named Vladimir Zvorkin. Vladimir, similar to Hugo's story, was another young genius who immigrated to New York when he was about 20. Hugo was like 18 years old, so it's similar stories here. Vladimir's very first night in New York City, I think he had a little money, um, was at the old Waldorf Astoria at 34th Street. Well, he went over to Pittsburgh and got a job at Westinghouse. Now, Zwarikin here collected patents on all sorts of various TV technology. And in 1929, his prototype of the cathode ray tube, he patented and called the kinescope. The kinescope, not the kinetoscope, which we've talked about in another podcast. Not the mutoscope. Not the mutoscope, the kinescope. That same year, he came into association with our old friend David Sarnoff here, who you mentioned at the beginning of the show, soon to be RCA's president at this time. So Sarnoff at RCA, who's still running radio stations, yes, selling radios, mm-hmm. but and is interested in what this guy is doing at Westinghouse. Yeah, he's, he wants to put his hands in all sorts of different mediums. In fact, that very same year, RCA would buy a company called the Victor Talking Machine, um, thus creating RCA Victor, which would mass produce turntables and, of course, records. Um, So he was getting into all these different mediums. And so one of them that he was interested in getting into here was television and via Zorkin here. Interestingly, in 1930, RCA would agree to move into a new office just a few years later. That building would, of course, be in Rockefeller Center, and the main building would be the RCA building. Over the next couple of months, I think that you and I will be spending a lot of time here in the RCA building. It's one of the most important buildings in television history here in New York. And Um, it was often referred to as Radio City. Right. So I kept coming across Radio City and in my mind, I would think of Radio City Music Hall. But we're talking about the building across the street, the GE slash NBC 30 Rock. Yeah, the the place was all nicknamed Radio City because it was the center of radio and then center of television production in the United States, at least here with RCA slash NBC. So essentially, think of Sarnoff and Zwarkin as sort of like going hand in hand here. He was the real face, the scientific face of RCA. Over the next 10 years, Sarnoff would invest almost $50 million into TV development, even though he wouldn't have a lot to show for. He needed to perfect it and get it right. Now, the problem, of course, is that Sarnoff was, of course, fearful of competition and any new inventions that were superseding his own. Like, they buried the mechanical TV to make sure that that never popped up again as a possible competitor. And he even delayed the development of FM radio for fear that it would destroy his thriving AM radio business. Right, and that they'd have to make some kind of new device or alter the devices that were already out there. And by the way, some of these early radio manufacturers thought that maybe television could be something that snaps onto existing radio sets, Uh, which I find kind of (laughs) fascinating. Imagine like taking this little like television attachment and just screwing it into the side of a radio. Well, some of these consoles did have radio and television uh, built into them, I think. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So Sarnoff's nemesis here, someone who actually had a leg up in TV inventions, uh, was a, a native of Beaver, Utah. His name, Philo Farnsworth. He was a child genius. In fact, when he was in high school, was already contemplating building a television device. 
as a young man, he made it out to San Francisco and while he was there began tinkering around and producing television devices and then very wisely patented some of these devices. And this would be very important to his later success. So he's almost like a lone wolf genius off in his own laboratory just cranking out these wonderful inventions. Sure, I mean he did, I mean he certainly had some backers, financial backers of course, but nowhere near this like mega New York corporation like, you know, what right. Sarnoff had. What's key in this story is in 1927 he invents something called the image dissector. Essentially, he created the seeds for the modern TV camera. So although he would invent a whole TV system with receiver and everything, what his most important invention is actually the camera itself. The superior television camera was patented and owned by Farnsworth over in San Francisco. But the superior receiver with the cathode ray was over here in New York in Zorkin, i.e. Sarnoff and RCA. So How is that going to resolve itself in the 1930s? Sounds like it's not going to be pretty. (laughs) So in the summer of 1931, Sarnoff would even visit Farnsworth's laboratories in San Francisco with maybe even a possibility of an alliance in his head. But the problem here is that Farnsworth was in New York. So Sarnoff was in San Francisco. Farnsworth was in New York with his wife on a particular legal matter, which I won't get into, but they were here for a couple months. They were just enjoying the city, he and his wife. Uh, They went to see Babe Ruth and Yankee Stadium. Uh, They went dancing in St. Regis, shopping at Lord and Taylor. So they were having all these wacky New York adventures. Sarnoff, his future nemesis here, was over in Farnsworth's lab and was completely unimpressed with all of these devices and, of course, was already thinking, okay, we need to get this. We need to take this over. Wait, they let Sarnoff into Farnsworth's lab in San Francisco yeah, without was, him there? No, well, well, it was Farnsworth's assistants gave him oh. uh, gave him a tour. And so, so the Sar- interns let Sarnoff <laughs> in to these top secret labs in San Francisco. So then Sarnoff just sort of turns and looks at the whole exchange and says, quote, well, there's nothing here that we'll need. So, so during the 30s, we have the two of them here in this crazy technology battle, sort of fought almost in near secrecy during the Great Depression. Because, of course, keep in mind, this is an experimental technology, and it would probably be in the news, but no one really had televisions and couldn't even conceive of what one really was at this time. You know, during the 30s, Farnsworth moved to Philadelphia. He finally started his own first broadcast station. He even became the first person to broadcast cartoons, which of course would be a big innovation. Um, He even invited during this period Mary Pickford, who was starring on a show on Broadway and was fresh from her divorce from Douglas Fairbanks. He even invited her out to Philadelphia for a little broadcast session. Meanwhile, Sarnoff was busy at work, of course, with his technologies. In 1932, he led a demonstration at a transmitting station at the newly opened Empire State Building. He was in the building speaking into a camera, which was then broadcast to a RCA recording studio on East 24th Street to a whole group of journalists and important types there. Now, what year was that? That was 1932. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because later NBC would be using the Empire State Building and the antenna on the very top of it to broadcast its signal. RCA began making television shows with its first experimental station, W2XBS. 
Um, I love these call letters, but <laughs> before they switched over to things that were a little bit easier, to they say, had, yeah. right, they had all of these they didn't they need didn't to. numbers and, yeah. A, sort of an early version of the station had begun in 1928, and so the very first images broadcast were a Felix the Cat doll, because it had such contrasts in black and white, of course. On a phonograph table, so yes. it, would, it was turning. <laughs> Eventually, of course, with the opening of Rockefeller Center, they had moved the whole Kitten caboodle over there to the RCA building to 3H, Studio 3H on the 52nd floor, where they would start broadcasting shows to an audience of 75 receivers throughout the city, mostly RCA staff. But most importantly, there would be some receivers in the green room of RCA because that's where all the executives and the important people would be right. invited into so they could like the see executives of the the big brands in new york city mm-hmm. the, the executives who were trying to decide whether or not they were going to fork over cash to sponsor these programs mm-hmm. so the first drama straight from broadway was broadcast for this exclusive audience here a show called susan and god and um, by the way, they had to wear these, you know, if they didn't wear a certain kind of makeup, the face could be c- kind of bleached out. So the earliest stars would have to put on green face paints <laughs> to show up, green makeup and black lipstick so that their lips could be seen. Well, that's not even the weirdest thing that'll go on peaceful people's faces here on TV. For, for my favorite early show on the RCA was this performer named Doan Powell, who did impressions of famous people while wearing plastic masks of their faces so for instance he would have a plastic mask of hitler and he would do an impression and he would do a plastic mask of roosevelt in the new york times covering this article with pictures of him in these scary masks actually had to say quote wearing the roosevelt mask mr powell is televised while the announcer makes it clear to the audience that the president is not appearing before the camera (laughs) in person but only his mask <laughs> but now, what's going on, by the way, in the, in the larger picture here, Farnsworth versus Sarnoff? Well, long story short, because this could be a whole show just on that. In 1935, they went to court over patents. Sarnoff, believe it or not, actually lost. And so as a result, RCA had to pony up a lot of royalties to Farnsworth to use his equipment. Not a lot of money if you consider that he's created this medium. Essentially, right. he was one of the one of the inventors so the, of it. And the father of the TV camera. Yeah. And so so he does go into his own business, but in terms of the sort of larger picture here, he sort of fades away, becomes a silent entity. Um, well, he wouldn't completely f- fade away because he also went on to invent things like the fax machine. Oh, that's right. And he invented something that was celebrated at 1939 World's Fair, which you'd think I was going to say was television, because television was <laughs> celebrated, certainly at the 39 World's Fair. But Farnsworth was better known at the 39 World's Fair for his work on inventing the baby incubator. <laughs> An important device. Don't get my laughter oh. wrong here. But. No, absolutely very important. It's just ironic <laughs> that people would associate Farnsworth at the fair with a baby incubator, not with television, which was happening. Now, you know how these World's Fairs are. We have a podcast about the other New York World's Fair. Uh, 1964 to 1965. The 1939 World's Fair deserves its own show as well. There were pavilions, just as there there were at 64, 65, pavilions that were sponsored by giant brands and by by giant corporations. And this World's Fair, on top of being important for a lot of different industries, including automobiles, just in terms of the things that were presented, would become a huge milestone here in the history of television. 
Right, because at this World's Fair, not only were many people, thousands of people every day, seeing televisions for the first time and given the opportunity to buy televisions, but it was at this World's Fair on the opening day, April 30th, 1939, that President Roosevelt gave a speech, and then afterwards he was followed by David Sarnoff, who, as the head of RCA and NBC, said, quote, It is fitting that the greatest World's Fair in history should be the scene for the first public showing of one of the most significant theatrical and social advances of modern time. Modest as always. <laughs> wow. I mean, not, uh, not understated he. But what was it that he was introducing? He continued, on April 30th, that would be that same day, the National Broadcasting Company will begin the first regular public television program service in the history of our country, and television viewing sets will be in the hands of merchants of the New York City area for purchase. So NBC really kicked off commercial broadcasting the first day of the World's Fair, April 30th, 1939. And it was in the RCA pavilion that people would go to see these TVs. The, the pavilion was shaped like a giant vacuum tube. And inside were 12 special receivers in place with screens that varied from 5 to 9 inches. These models were on sale. These televisions were on sale for $200 to $600 a set, which was really expensive really in 1939. Really expensive, yeah. It's expensive today. <laughs> and at that point, there had only been about 200 as you said, sold or given out in the New York City area. Mm-hmm. So RCA and NBC really wanted to increase the number of receivers in the area. People coming in and looking at these receivers were spellbound, obviously, but some were doubting that the TVs were even real. Some thought that they might be a trick, that they were somehow projecting a film inside. So they made some of the models, they made a special model that was all in plastic. The body was in plastic so that people could look in and see the big TV tube inside. But I think the point to make here about the World's Fair is this is the first time that TVs became almost a relatable device that people could just come in, play around with, and then sort of dream about, ooh, that would be nice to have in my home. Absolutely. And they were seen programming because NBC kicked off broadcasting that same day. They were seen shows that were made just for these devices that were originating in NBC studios in Radio City. One other thing that the people could get there, and this is like such a great Sarnoff publicity stunt, Mm -hmm. is that visitors to the RCA Pavilion could stand in front of a TV camera and be broadcast onto one of the screens in the same place. So they wouldn't go out on the entire network, but they could appear on television, and then the guest would receive a card that says, blank, with the name, has been televised. Wow. So and with I mean, a whole little plug for RCA televisions. I mean, kids must have loved Club this Bizarre. pavilion, you know? It's incredible. But I should add, Greg, that there were other pavilions and other companies selling TVs. It wasn't just the RCA pavilion. There were competitors to RCA selling televisions, including a company called Dumont, which had a far cheaper television. So it, it was around this time that television production in New York really begins to ramp up, that these existing experimental stations now decide to present broadcast entertainment on spending more money on a grander scale now. So NBC, for instance, to increase their programming, naturally turned to their greatest pool of talent, which was Broadway, right there, right outside their window. So many Broadway shows, like recently closed shows, would then be remounted 
uh, for this small, small screen here. And and actors wouldn't necessarily want to do this because TV was seen as like a step down for them. Oh, oh because and it, no one really understood it. It seemed filthy and it didn't make them look very good. However, to sort of corral some of these stars, they hired Broadway producer Max Gordon and put him in charge of NBC dramatic programming. Now, Tom, I know you know Max Gordon because yes. he pops up in the song Anything Goes. I think you know this, the lyric... When Rockefeller still can hoard enough money to let Max Gordon produce the shows, oh. anything goes. <laughs> wow, I didn't know that was coming. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> wow, you really caught me off guard there. Um, but but wow, so even Cole Porter is writing about Max <laughs> yes. Gordon. So NBC during this period, for instance, broadcast the first Western on TV called Missouri Legend. And it was a very stiff, incredibly hokey, like bad wooden acting and imperfect makeup, shall we say. The first Major League Baseball game was actually broadcast in August of 1939 from Ebbets Field in Brooklyn, and it was the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Cincinnati Reds. I believe that when they were broadcasting it, it was actually hard to follow the ball because of the resolution of the screen. Oh, you so couldn't you- even see a ball. You just <laughs> had to sort I mean, you had to hear the announcer and hope that they were getting it right. They had to tinker around a little bit with how they broadcast sports. For instance, there was a, a live boxing match that, had to, that was being taped, and it had to be stopped because one of the boxers was wearing red shorts, and how it was being projected, it looked like he was nude. So it was like a nude boxing match, and so they had to stop it and put him in different color boxers. But it could have been great boxer and different boxers. <laughs> boxers yeah. <laughs> but it could have been great for the ratings. Now, NBC during this time had two other major competitors. There were two other major networks. We talked about CBS launching its experimental mechanical station. Right. Indeed, CBS, Columbia Broadcast, was getting out of the mechanical business and was getting into electrical TV here in a major way. Major. In fact, in 1939, the year that all this other stuff is going on, they decide to expand and move into brand new studios, Tom. Get this. Grand Central Terminal is where their studios were. Where were they in Grand Central? Well, they, were, they weren't like... Like on, on track 39 or <laughs> it's, something? It's not like where the Apple store is. I mean, that's what I'm visualizing. But no, it, it, was, above the, it was above the waiting room. So You know, no. in the Grand Central Terminal podcast, we talked about how they, they were selling off space and they, they had all these other things happening in order to try to raise money, remember? Mm-hmm. Bowling alleys, they were having all kinds <laughs> of crazy also, things up there. Up there. Because Sarnoff had his transmitter on the Empire State Building. Well, William Paley was like, oh, well, I'll see you. I'll double you. And I'll put my transmitter on top of the Chrysler building. Mm -hmm. In 1941, they experimented with the very first 15-minute news broadcast, which, of course, you know, CBS is well known for its uh, news division. It was essentially sound atop a static visual, like of American flag or something, and people would sort of talk over it. So it was almost just like a radio show at first. Then more regular live broadcasts would come in near the end of World War II. Okay, so that's CBS. So we have NBC, we have CBS, and mm-hmm. you said three, so ABC. No, actually. ABC... Oh, because ABC came later, as I mentioned in yeah, the beginning so of the AB- show. Yeah, so ABC will come a little bit later. The third network... Now, what was the name of the television set production company that you had mentioned at World's Fair? Dumont. So the third network was Dumont Broadcasting Network, um, named for Alan Dumont... 
Sounds fancy. Their original studios in 1938 was at 515 Madison Avenue. That building today is still called the DeMont Building, and the top of it looks like a television antenna. It's a gorgeous building. What's the cross street? Madison at 53rd Street. In 1946, Dumont would open an additional studio. This is just the best place to have a studio. Moved their studios into Wanamaker's department store in Astor Place. Um, So they would broadcast from another floor in department store. Which radio stations were doing. There was a whole legacy Mm -hmm. of radio stations and Wanamaker's and... Well, the first television station in the UK out of, you know, it was broadcasting from That's suffrage. true. So there's a, actually a deep connection because I guess it's good advertising. And you could buy the sets. In fact, in the, 19, in the 1940s, if you wanted to see a famous person, a famous star, you actually could go down to McSorley's Old Ale House just a couple blocks away because that was a big hangout for all the executives and stars and staff of DeMont. Because Wanamaker's in Astor Place is just a, you know, it's a few blocks away. It's on the other side of the Cooper Union. Now, I'm jumping ahead of myself here because there's two, of course, great big things that happened in the 1940s that would affect the future of television. Obviously, World, World War, War II. II. Um, you know, not only in subject matter, but stations would go on blackouts for a year at a time. People weren't buying TVs during this time. They were conserving. Um, so and and probably a lot of the top talent, the mechanical talent, the engineers, were serving in the war effort as well. But there would be some broadcast near the end of the war because uh, there would just be more of a demand for it. In fact, Dumont would get its reputation from these uh, wartime broadcasts. The other big thing here is the introduction of government oversight with the debut of the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, which was formed in 1934. But in 1941, they approved commercial status to broadcast TV to any station that could broadcast 15 hours a week. Uh Uh-huh. So there was a minimum time that you had to be on the air. And then these, these stations with commercial status would then be assigned channels on the dial. So that's how uh, some of these early channels got assigned numbers. So to recap here, by the time of the end of the war, there are three major television stations in New York City. You have Dumont, at the Dumont Building and down at Wanamaker's, you have NBC at Rockefeller Center, and you have CBS at Grand Central, and their transmitters at the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building. So to sum up this show here, I want to end on the year 1948, which is a crucial year in the history of TV and where we're going to leave off. A few interesting things happen that changed TV forever. One of them is a sort of odd moment in history. It's basically the ending of a strike. The American Federation of Musicians were actually barring people from performing on TV, partially out of deference to Hollywood, because Hollywood moguls were, of course, getting a little bit more concerned about this. Of course. So they didn't want television to then include music, which was going to draw people there anymore. Well, in 1948, that strike ended. And so, of course, immediately, some of these stations like NBC, for instance, uh, took their big radio star, Arturo Toscanini. The great conductor. And the NBC Symphony Orchestra threw them on TV, and they were a smash hit. Because there is no more striking image to watch for a couple hours than a studio orchestra. But, but seriously, I mean, T- Toscanini was a huge smash. It was the end of the war. So in 1948, ABC makes its debut. So now there are four stations as of 1948. 
But a bigger change is actually how people are digesting television as sort of a pop culture moment, how people are finally seeing for the first time how applicable and exciting a television can be in their lives. And in particular, in New York City, because, of course, these major stations were all here. In fact, I read some number of conflicting statistics, but essentially most TVs in the United States were in New York. I even read one statistic that said that two thirds of all televisions were in New York City. But in 1948, several new stations opened up throughout the United States. So this was a pivotal year for people who didn't live in these big cities to finally experience TV for the very first time. Of course, these major department store chains amped up their television sales and Macy's, Bloomingdale's, Wanamaker's, of course. My favorite little fact about 1948 in television is the fact that when we watch TV today, like even today, TV is the most special to us when it's event television, when it's right. something that like we all can sit down and enjoy and watch together, like a ma- uh, major events. Like the opening of the Tonys. <laughs> like the opening of the Tonys or a presidential election, for instance, as or another. Debate. <laughs> yes, these are all moments that we watch and cherish together. So sure enough, in the summer of 1948, there were a few really major events. Now, one way that people got to see TVs for the first time, which I love, and actually in bars. Bars would get TVs before people would have them in their homes. So for these major events in the summer of 1948, people would gather at bars and watch, for instance, the Republican National Convention, which was on June 21st and eventually gave us Thomas Dewey as the uh, as the presidential hopeful. More importantly, on June 25th was this major boxing match between the great Joe Lewis and Jersey Joe Walcott. They boxed at Yankee Stadium in front of an audience of 42,000 live people, mm-hmm. but a great many more people watched it on television sets. They watched it at bars. They watched it at these gathering places and realized, well, I'd love to have one of these in, in my home to gather. I don't need to like sit here and spend all this money at a bar. I can have this device in my own house. It's hilarious to think that 60 years later in 2008, you and I would go to Sweet and Vicious, the bar, uh, what is it, on Spring Street, Uh to to watch uh, presidential debates and have a couple of drinks. I mean, sharing in this, I mean, this national pastime of watching things on television, that really all began here in the late 1940s. I will only leave this date to say that, like, this is the date that TV explodes because, of course, a lot of key television shows would debut this year. Shows like Meet the Press, Howdy Doody, Candid Camera, and Milton Berle in the Texaco Star Theater. And The Ed Sullivan Show. All of those would debut in 1948, basically igniting the golden age of television. So what a cliffhanger we're leaving you with, folks. We've got four TV networks about to embark on the golden age of television. We have a nation that is now about to start its love affair with TV. So on our next episode, we shall dive into the golden age of television and its effects throughout the 60s, 70s, and beyond. So until then, join us on the blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, on Twitter, at BoweryBoys, where Greg live tweets during that great TV program, Mad Men. Yes, Mad Men and now Copper on BBC America, set in the 19th century, Five Points. Tying into television, of course. And five points. We also put out a five points newsletter, which you can sign up for, which 
I tried to, ooh, which reminds me, I didn't send one out today, but I need to put one together. Um, every Thursday, if you're in New York, we talk about five exciting New York City history-related things that are happening this weekend that we're excited about. So you can sign up for that by just Googling Five Points Newsletter or Bowery Boys Newsletter or just go to the blog. So like a good TV show, we leave you on this cliffhanger. What happens next for television in New York City? You'll have to stay tuned to find out. Please stand by. So until then... Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Bye.